0: And in fact, the video was from a computer game and the Russian M.O.D. had actually used a screenshot from a computer game as it's irrefutable evidence.
1: You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here
0: are your hosts.
1: Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. Producer Kevin Nodell is still in the Middle East, but we will hear from him soon. Misinformation, grainy and low resolution images from government sources, signals intelligence, Facebook posts, satellite imagery, YouTube videos, online databases of vast and public knowledge. These and more are the tools by which Elliot Higgins and Bellingcat suss out the truth in a complicated world. On June 13th, something attacked two oil tankers in the Gulf of Amman. The United States blamed Iran, producing footage it claimed linked Iran's Revolutionary Guard to the incident. Iran denied responsibility, and people aboard the tankers say the story the U.S. is telling doesn't add up. So, is this the clever sleight of hand from Iran, a Gulf of Tonkin-style operation meant to draw the U.S. into war, or something else entirely? Here to help us figure that out, and more importantly, how we came to this conclusion is Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. So very briefly for those who might not know, can you briefly describe what Bellingcat is and what its mission is?
0: Um, so Bellingcat is um, probably best known for the um, online open source investigations we do. Um, we investigate various kinds of incidents, Um m- mainly focused on conflicts, but also broader than that but we do that by using publicly available information um looking at for example social media posts on a range of uh, platforms uh, and also using other resources like Google Earth um Google Street View and different kinds of searches but it's really about trying to c- connect um to as much digital information as possible you know using the internet you know to its fullest extent to explore uh, what happened in different areas all right so june 13th
1: we hear about these takers what's the first thing that Bellingcat does? Um,
0: so the first question is, you know, are these tankers actually where they claim to be? Um, and we can actually use websites now, like Marine Traffic, that actually tracks the uh, transponders on these vessels. So um, you simply search for the names of the vessels that claim to have been attacked, and then it shows you where they were. And they did show that they were in the Gulf of Oman, and quite close to each other.
1: And then pretty quickly after... Information starts to come out. The US government then releases images of what it claims are uh, a hole blown in the side of the hull by a limpet mine. And what did you make of
0: these and how did you process them? Well, um, I mean, what we are looking at, we had this blurry footage of this uh, vessel that was claimed to be uh, Iranian that was taking or supposedly taking something off the side of the vessel. Now, this was very blurry footage. Um, It was hard to see what was being taken off, even if there was something being taken off Um, the vessel. We. We're told it was Iranian, but how do we know it's Iranian? So, um, kind of various people online, including myself, started digging through um, video footage and photographs posted by the Iranians themselves of the vessels they use. Um, and it was possible to find a match to the same kind of um, vessel that was featured in this video. So, um, by doing that, we can start kind of establishing that whether or not the story that's being told by the Americans is consistent with the evidence they're presenting. Now, I say consistent because what they're actually presenting was not necessarily proof of what they were claiming we could see in the video that it kind of looked like they someone was removing something from the side of the vessel but how do we know it's a limpet mine as claimed we don't have a clear view of it um So we, we are trying to establish as much as we can about it. But what I think is very interesting in the way that, um, states and, you know, including the US are presenting information about their claims is, um, they could be a lot more transparent. Why is it up to the open source community to figure out whether or not the boat featured really is the boat they're claiming? Why didn't they present their own evidence making this case? And, um, this is something I come back to time and time again when nation states are trying to make these claims that, We have this vast amount of open source information that can be used to verify the claims they're making, and they're just not bothering doing it. And I think there is this kind of perception among people who are uh, kind of very aware of what you can do with open source information that they aren't doing this. And it creates this kind of dissonance where uh, kind of doubt about the claims kind of creeps in. It's kind
1: of the extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And in a world where everyone's filming everything all the time and everything is tracked and monitored uh you better be able to back up what you're claiming.
0: That's right. And especially when you're dealing with uh you know Donald Trump and John Bolton who um have a loose um ethics when it comes to the truth. Um I think most people want that extra step. They want clear evidence. I mean something as simple as the um video starts At what appears to be the moment the mine is being removed. Why don't we have 10 seconds beforehand when that object would be a lot clearer on the whole? It just, you know, adds questions in the minds of the people who are already kind of quite cynical and dismissive to these claims. Now there's always going to be an audience that is going to be dismissive no matter what the evidence is who are convinced that everything's a false flag, but they can do a lot more to make their case and they're failing to do so at the moment. We've had a bit more information. There was a clearer photograph of the vessel that allowed us to confirm the um, uh, uh, identity of it. There was an image showing um, a close-up of the side of the vessel from where the um, object was removed that showed some sort of um, disc-shaped of broken object attached to it, which appeared to be in a ring of similarly sized marks on the hull, which suggested that could be a kind of magnetic kind of um, clamp. But it still didn't tell us a ton of type of munition. Now, what would have been useful there, again, is if the U.S. had an image of an Iranian limpet mine that had a clear view that matched the object that was kind of left on the hull. Um, so, that, you know, that there's options for the U.S. to make a much clearer case. And it's something they've been failing to do. That's not to say that they're lying, but they need to make a case to the public about what's happened.
1: What is? Can you describe to the audience what a limpet mine is and why that might have been the weapon
0: used? Um, so it's basically a shaped charge that they can attach uh, magnetically to the side of a vessel and then detonate and you know put a hole in the side of it. And we could clear, see from the photographs clearly there were holes in the side of these vessels, and um, you know one of them was some fire. Um, but the question is, what made those holes? And then you have the crew who were claiming there were flying objects um, they spotted just before the. Um, uh, Vessel was hit. You know, some people saying those were missiles being fired. We don't have any direct evidence of that. But having these kind of um, contradictory statements or statements that appeared like they might be contradictory um, makes masses more complex. And what do you think is
1: missing from the footage? What else are we not seeing that we should be seeing that would maybe clear anything up?
0: Well, for one thing, it would be useful to have a clear view of what that object was on the side of the vessel. There's a couple of photographs, but at best, it looks like a black triangle, which really doesn't tell us much about the object in question. Um, You know, this footage that they um, broadcast, um, if we had, you know, just the moment before they approached the vessel, we'd have another angle on this object. It would help make it clearer. Um, and just you know presenting more evidence that the remains of the object that was removed from the vessel and, and photographed was what was claimed to be you know the clamp on the limpet mine.
1: Another thing I think is very is fascinating and important to understand about the work you do is that anyone can do this, right? The tools exist for all of us to be our own investigators, correct
0: yeah absolutely i mean this uh, it's, it's like I mentioned before we have the ma- marine traffic website that allowed you to track the vessels we have satellite imagery after the vessels were hit there was actually satellite imagery showing the uh, oil that had leaked into the sea around it um so it allows us to kind of cross-reference it, lots of information that helps us confirm some of the claims being made um you can look at the vessels that were featured the iranian vessel and find uh, the same vi- vessel in other imagery um and this is all publicly available information and that can take you so far but there is going to be information that we can't get especially in a military context um but looking broadly you know beyond just this specific instance i mean. Bellingcat has done a vast amount of investigations, digging through all kinds of material, just doing all kinds of things like identifying, for example, um, the missile launcher that shot down MH17, where it came from, the military brigade it came from, um, all the members of that military brigade from their social media profiles, and who was in the convoy that transported it, um, and just so many more details that can be found online. And how does someone train themselves
1: to do this? Because that's what you did, right? You taught yourself how to do this.
0: Um, Yeah, I I mean, when I started off, I was just doing this as a hobby and I was interested in videos from Syria and what they could tell us. And I I didn't speak Arabic, so I was focused very much on the weapons. And there's a lot of information available online about kind of Soviet era weapons, which were most of the weapons being used in Syria. Um, So that was mainly just you know digging through stuff. If I saw a marking on a weapon, I'd Google what that marking was and then that would lead to photographs and people discussing it. Um, And, you know, Myself, I was able to get in contact with arms experts and uh, learn a lot from them directly. But the stuff we do is quite simple. If you, it's like uh, if you go to a, you know a meeting or an event and you Google the address on Google Maps, you've done an open source investigation. uh If you start using Street View for you to have a look around the area, that's an open source investigation. It doesn't have to be about a war crime. It can be just figuring out where a shop is, and and anyone can do that. It's a simple little thing.
1: Right. Everyone has the tools already. A lot of people are already doing this stuff. It's just about translating it to, you know, things you may not think to, to look at, such as, you know, tankers on fire in the Gulf of Amman.
0: It's like having a toolbox. And, um, you know, it's easy to use a screwdriver and hammer, um, but you can kind of combine those in interesting ways and kind of look at the material you have and what you want to turn it into. And then you have these different solutions to get to that point.
1: So there's this idea that and it's very popular right now that we live um in a post-truth world, right? That you know you can't trust anything you see anywhere and it's incredibly hard to figure out you know what's actually going on in any one incident, especially if it's something overseas and especially if it's something to do with the military. Uh it seems like your work and uh what you do stands in opposition to that. Um what do you think of this post-truth world?
0: well I mean my approach has already been looking at you know what can we find out from all this information that's available online it, it really came um, you know to me when I was looking at um, what was happening in Libya and this was just as a consumer of news not as an investigator um, seeing that was these little scraps of information that was coming from Libya that could be pieced together to gain a better understanding of what was happening on the ground and at that point no one was really doing that so that's what I started doing with my uh, blog back in 2012 um, and now we're looking at how we can apply this kind of investigation process to uh, justice and accountability, working with lawyers and, you know, giving stuff to courts and seeing how that kind of information can be used in courts.
1: Right. I believe the last time we talked, you had just testified at somebody's war crime trial, correct? Using YouTube footage of war crimes?
0: Um, It may have been the um, European Court of Human Rights case on MH17, um, and there's the Court of Justice case, uh, Ukraine versus Russia, where we've been asked to submit evidence. Um, The lesson we learned there is that you need to have a good process for archiving and investigating information at the time you're doing it, because going back to stuff that you wrote three years ago and finding all the links are broken and then having to rewrite it in a certain style for a court um, in great detail is uh, painful when you've already done it once. Um, Um, So what we're doing now with this new investigation process we've developed is um, we have an archiving process where as we're doing investigations online, everything we're doing is being archived uh, and saved. Um, alongside that we can um, archive specific pieces of information add lots of metadata to it and create basically a giant searchable archive of verified information Um, the idea there is then that will be accessible um, to investigative bodies in the future Um, and it will also allow us to create a process that we can share with other organisations and have multiple archives and investigations um, kind of meeting the same standard Um, then it's going to be uh, kind of centralised Indexed, uh, making it easily accessible to those kind of bodies that need to find this information um, and don't want to spend months just investigating one incident.
1: It's building a database that people can build on.
0: Yeah, it's, it's having this database, but also um, the, the, uh, I M on Syria that was set up by the UN General Assembly is looking to the issues of um, how they can deal with million, literally millions of videos from Syria. It's a huge data management task and that's just the kind of YouTube videos. Then you have all the videos that were filmed by people on the ground that might be on a hard drive somewhere. How do you make that information accessible when not everyone wants to share all their information with an organization? So the idea is that we are developing this archiving software um, with the Syrian Archive. Um, it's part of the process that we're using and this archive is archiving software um, allows it to be accessed by these, um, or the index that sits on top of the archiving software I should say allows it to be searched for information then we can choose to share that information uh, with the bodies who want to find it. But it also means that we can distribute this process to other organizations and they can also share it in the same way and they therefore have control over what they're sharing. So it might be it's an organization that has lots of sensitive witness statements. Um and they don't necessarily want the whole world to know about that, but they still want it to be accessible through this centralized index. So they can just share that they have a video filmed about an incident that took place on a certain date at a certain location. And then if say the triple M on Syria wants it, they can send a request and it gets sent through them to them securely, rather than it being a process where, say, an investigator, the AAAM, is looking into an incident, and then they have to figure out every single organization. who might have a video, send them all a separate message, figure out if they can use kind of the description of the incident that all the other organizations are using, um, and then wait for those organizations to respond and send them an email. Um, Something that could take weeks and weeks and weeks is instead something that can take a few mouse clicks. How do you protect a database like that? Um, well, this is a big issue we're facing with our Yemen project because we have concerns in how uh, we're looking into Saudi airstrikes. So we're concerned about how Saudi Arabia will respond to our research. So, um, I mean, th- there is just kind of security of the you know physical server security um General cybersecurity, you know, simple stuff, using the two-step verification, not being silly and clicking on links that you shouldn't be clicking on. Um, but there are, you know, if there's a physical attack of some sort on our server, and you know, someone tries to access our building and get into it, that, you know, we have to take physical security measures uh, putting everything behind locked and coded doors and those kind of ideas.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news, For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. Do you think it's easier or harder now for state actors to lie to the public and get away with it?
0: I think it's a lot harder. I mean, through the work we've been doing with MH17, um, we encountered a lot of Russian government propaganda about what happened. and They presented a lot of evidence that we showed was fake. Uh, or you know they made statements that we t- proved was totally untrue. I mean the broader statement they made is that they weren't involved with MH17 being shot down. But using open source investigation, we've been able to prove that they provided a specific missile launcher that was cam- coming from a, a specific unit in a specific convoy on a specific day, and it crossed the border and was filmed in Ukraine that went to a specific field. Um, and this is all from publicly available information, and this is information that the official criminal investigation is basically very verified at this point, um, and we've just seen four suspects now charged as part of the investigation And everything they've done is consistent with the open source investigations we've been doing and making we've made findings that they've revealed, you know, two years after we've revealed them. Um, But what they also have is the non open source stuff. They're really interesting stuff like uh, more phone intercepts, uh, witness statements and additional details. Um, So for Russia to keep saying that they weren't responsible for MH17 being shot down and they aren't sending military equipment across the border um, is something that is clearly false so we can demonstrate that you know very very easily at this point but how do you get people to listen well um i think you're always going to have an audience online who don't want to listen they're going to see everything as a vast conspiracy and the more evidence you present just reinforces the idea that it is a vast and complex conspiracy in their view so you can't really make those people happy or change their minds um i think what you can do is you know present um evidence and information to a more general audience who um isn't necessarily part of that kind of information ecosystem. And we'll kind of see that information ecosystem as being something that's kind of insane and illogical once it's they've seen the evidence that's out there. So it is worthwhile doing these investigations. And the great thing about open source investigation is we can present all the evidence that we're using and people can look at it themselves and make their own conclusions.
1: Deep fakes is one of the new hot buzzwords we're talking about in the tech community. I assume you know exactly what it is, Right. Yes, so
0: um, deep fakes are something that I get asked about a lot, and I kind of think of them in two ways one is the kind of um, immediate social me- media reaction to them where if you have a minute long video of uh, Barack Obama saying Donald Trump is the greatest president ever uh, that'll go viral and spread across the world in a few you know, f- a few moments um, and counteracting that is difficult on the other hand as we're doing investigations um, where you know if we saw a video like that we would figure out who posted it first um, you know find the original speech the full length version of it what Shit, you know. Look at all the different aspects of it. Any actual piece of evidence is part of a network of information, and that's the network that we're exploring.
1: So you just see it as another piece in the puzzle. Are you worried about the effect that these kinds of videos may have on the, the broader public discourse, uh, people's opinions of military operations? And there's, I mean, we're we're putting you know we're putting our fear cart before the horse right now. But um, I think. People that that look at look at the stuff and understand it are, are really scared that these things could get out of hand.
0: I think what you might see happening is um, people will lose faith in kind of videos being real, which um, in a way is I, I think how kind of social media community will respond to this because um, if we start, for example, seeing in the um, upcoming presidential uh, uh, elections in the U.S., we start seeing um kind of these videos appearing it won't take long for them to be identified as fakes and then anytime you have a video saying someone saying something extraordinary people are going to assume it's fake because they'll have so many examples of where someone has said something extraordinary and it's turned out to be fake. Um, You might see that slightly differently in closed social networks, though. Um, One thing we're seeing more and more is um, kind of um, violence that's inspired by um, kind of conversations going on in closed uh, social networks. We've seen this in Myanmar and elsewhere in the world. And that's harder to address because generally if you're part of a closed social network, you're going to trust the other people in that network. You aren't going to be fact checking. Them so much, and they're probably going to be, have the same points of view as you do. So they aren't even going to be interested in checking this stuff. They'll just assume it's real. Um, and I think that is kind of probably more of a fake, uh, more of a uh, threat with deep fakes than kind of open social media where we can kind of see these things and debate them and debunk them.
1: Right. This that leads beautifully into my next question. Uh, how can how can investigators combat misinformation faster than the speed of public opinion?
0: It, it might be possible. I mean, we have one interesting example where the Russian MOD um, posted on their social media uh, accounts um, what they claim to be irrefutable evidence of um, U.S. helping ISIS re- um withdraw uh, in Syria so they could be redeployed elsewhere in the Middle East, as it was described. And they had four images that appear to have been taken from a drone. Now we looked into this um, because one of the Im- images was very interesting because i had seen it a couple of weeks beforehand um, in a video posted by an Indian journalist. And that journalist had claimed it was US forces attacking a convoy. And in fact, the video was from a computer game. And the Russian M.O.D. had actually used a screenshot from a computer game in as it's irrefutable evidence. Um, what happened then is because we, I had kind of seen this video from this Indian journalist and then written, you know, mentioned it on Twitter saying it was from a computer game, the people who've kind of followed me on Twitter are also the kind of people who follow the Russian M.O.D. on Twitter. Uh, Twitter. So you immediately had this reaction against the Russian M.O.D. Um, of people saying this is from a computer game, this is nonsense. And it happened immediately. Um, and because of that, before even this narrative could be kind of created beyond social media that the U.S. was doing this thing, you know, protecting ISIS forces, the narrative that was created was, in fact, the Russian Emirates is using computer game photographs to uh, as irrefutable evidence. And it was widely reported. It became quite a big news story. And it was very, very embarrassing. So by having this discussion about fake uh, news looking, you know, Using social networks to, in a way, create an immunity against some of this, it can be very useful. Um, and it, it kind of creates a certain level of cynicism. Um, but when you have something somewhere like the Russian MOD presenting something like that as evidence, it turns out to be fake. Having that kind of inoculation against that kind of fake news is very useful.
1: What is the deal with the Kremlin using video game screenshots in propaganda? It's not That's not the first time I've heard the story or seen it.
0: Well, it, it's like, um, they, they claimed it was a civilian employee who did it, but it had been purposely cropped to crop out all the, um, data that would have showed it was, uh, from a computer game. So it was definitely something that was done on purpose. And it was translated into, you know, Arabic and English and posted on Facebook and Twitter. So it wasn't just some silly, you know, employee clicking on the wrong image in a folder. It was a definite attempt to fake it. And the, the other three images were actually from, um, uh, Iraq and nothing to do with Syria, uh, and from a few years earlier. Um, why they do it i i think it must be just be um hubris and oh, you you've got to think the people they're hiring to do these jobs are not people who are interested in you know the facts uh, you know they they're interested in you know the party line you know being loyal to russia not about uh you know fact checking every little thing that they're doing so um i mean it, it was an idiotic thing to do but i mean in my own experience i mean because banica has written a lot about russia we've had claims made about Bellingcat and me personally uh we had the russian ambassador to the UK give a press conference after the um, uh, Scripple investigation we did where we identified um, the people who claimed to be sports nutrition uh, nutrition salesmen going to Salisbury to see the cathedral were actually GRU agents and we exposed that when he was asked about that, he started making claims that we were part of what he called the British deep establishment. Um and he made those claims several times. And when a journalist at the end of the press conference asked him, What's your evidence? He said, Well, we don't have any evidence, we have a feeling. Uh which really says everything about how Russia approaches these kind of things. It's all all, all about feeling for them, not
1: evidence. Well, and it also feels like Russian propaganda is, is kind is a hobby horse on this show. Um what do you make of this idea that they will intentionally release several different narratives to confuse, uh, you know, confuse everybody and muddy the waters and kind of make everyone cynically give up?
0: Well, you saw this quite clearly with um, MH17. In uh, just shortly after MH17 was shot down, the Russian Ministry of Defense gave a press conference. Um, at their press conference, they um, presented various claims about what happened to MH17. Now. Um, What they actually did is rather than um, making specific allegations, they presented evidence that Um, if you actually looked at it, it was fairly contradictory. So one thing they presented was satellite imagery claiming Ukrainian Buck missile launchers had moved uh, on July 17th. And they asked, why did these Buck missile launchers move? They were very confused about it. But they also presented um, their evidence that a Ukrainian Su-25 was close to MH17 when it was shot down. And they were asking, why is it nearby? They presented evidence that MH17 had dramatically changed course and asked whether or not that was Ukrainian air traffic control. So they set up all these different scenarios as by asking these questions. I and mean, all this evidence was fake and false. and It was all lies. I and mean, it could be proved through open sources eventually. Um, but by setting up all these different questions, then this kind of the me- Russian media picked up on it. We had, you know, um, the kind of online community discussing it and bloggers pursuing certain things. So after that, the idea that it was a Ukrainian SU-25 that shot down uh, MH17 kind of took hold. So then all the kind of online co- community discussing this were finding what they claimed was evidence that proved this. But in the end, after two years, uh, even Russia kind of uh, using the same evidence actually said there was actually no aircraft near MH17. So the community around it moved straight on to saying it was, well, it's a Ukrainian buck then, even though they would spent the last two years trying to find the evidence that supported it was an SU-25 and constantly claiming success. Um, and, and and it's kind of this mindset of the kind of people who are, are the kind of pro-Russian uh, MH17 troopers that if something's disproven, they just move on to the next thing that they claim proves it, even though they've been wrong 50 times in the past.
1: It's just hard to imagine that public opinion continue, would continue to follow them anywhere.
0: Yeah. But I mean, I think that's probably part of the point. Yeah, I think in a way they're kind of trying to create this, um, I don't know if they purposely are trying to create confusion, they just want to kind of feed, you know, plant the seeds for as many many narratives as possible to, you know, get to the point where they want, uh, where there's just this insane kind of, you know, debate online about this kind of stuff. But the thing is with MH17, there's a criminal investigation and a vast amount of open source evidence, so It's not going to really work in a court if they go there and start saying, oh, here's what we think might have happened, you know. We have a new European Court of Human Rights case where, you know, they're they're asking for about three billion dollars for um, uh, the families of the victims. And there they can't come. You know, that case has been accepted by the European Court of Human Rights. We're now waiting for the Russian response. We I, I think the expectation is Russia's going to ask for more time. But then we're going to have the March 2020 um, cases in uh, Holland. Um, on MH17 and there even more evidence is going to be released. So what's Russia going to come up with a bunch of conspiracy theories they found on the websites. It's not
1: going to work. What do you think of legislative attempts to combat misinformation? Can government do anything about say like deep fakes?
0: Um, I mean, it, it, it's difficult because, um, if you start legislating against what is considered to be fake news he basically sets up a situation where we can do it you know in the west and you know do it with the best intentions but we've already seen um countries uh all over the world using the term fake news to just dismiss evidence. a good example of this is um, uh, there's a video that was posted online in uh, the summer of 2017 or 2018, actually. um, And it showed um, two women and two young children somewhere in Africa or assumed to be in Africa being walked off the side of the road and executed. It was a brutal video. um, And it was quickly established that it was, um, Uniforms of the Cameroonian army, the language matched, the weapons they were using matched, and this was presented to the um, government of Cameroon, who dismissed it as fake news. Uh, you know, borrowing bar- Donald Trump's term. But an investigation by the BBC collaborating with Amnesty International, Banakat and others um, found exactly where it was filmed, the approximate date range and the identity of everyone involved. And a year later, these seven soldiers who were involved are now being put on trial. And this is after the government called it fake news. Um, But this this, is almost this kind of casual dismissal of evidence that's shared online because we kind of lose trust in it. And this is something kind of more oppressive regimes will take advantage of and use to punish people who are showing Genuine information.
1: That's that's interesting. It kind of speaks back to what we were talking about. With the, the one of the the Russian strategies is just throwing just throwing out as much information, false and true as possible.
0: Right. The bigger danger is for people to become cynical. Yeah, I mean, it, in a way, there has to be a certain level of cynicism. Uh, it's been interesting in the last few days um, looking at um, Boris Johnson and uh, this. A kind of argument that was reported with his partner, and then this photograph that was published, I think, in The Daily Mail, showing him and his partner in this lovely countryside scene, looking like they were getting along. Uh, and you know, the male kind of spinning it in this very positive way for Boris Johnson but then people were looking at that and you know even journalists were saying well it looks like his hair's a bit longer than it was you know yesterday and you know, was this actually a recently recent photograph and when he was interviewed about it he seemed very evasive about exactly when it was taken um, so you know it might be in that case the cynicism is justified but what we're trying to do with Bellingcat is kind of crowdsource the geolocation of that photograph to see if we can confirm whether or not it is actually old or not rather than just relying on cynicism to kind of you know lead the way
1: well i think that that's actually a hopeful note to end the show on we don't normally do a lot of those uh elliot higgins of bellingcat thank you so much for coming onto war college and walking us through all of this thank you that's all for this week war college listeners war college is me matthew galt kevin odell and derek gannon was created by myself and jason fields special thanks to samantha cole colleague of mine at motherboard who gave me the excellent questions about deep fakes as always if you like the show please rate us on itunes and leave a comment it helps other people find us we're on twitter at war underscore college and we will be back next week stay safe until then have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well